0: You're listening to The Oaks Church, a faith family located in Denham Springs, Louisiana. For more information about The Oaks, visit oaksonline.org. Psalms 36 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, and your judgments are like the great deep. For you, the man and the beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. This morning, the Word will speak to the, to the mother who's lost a child. To the mother who's miscarried, lost a child in the womb. The one who cannot have a child. This, this morning, the Word will speak to the father who wakes every morning, puts his feet flat on the ground, and fights through his purpose to go to work. This morning, the Word will speak to the wife whose husband is found unfaithful and sleeps alone at night. The Word this morning will speak to the man and woman who has lost their job or are striving to find the next step in life when it comes to their career as they ponder and pace and wonder. The Word this morning will speak to the worker who has stood faithfully for Christ, but has been mocked, has been jabbed at, laughed, taunted. The Word this morning will speak to the persecuted church across the globe, those who meet underground to sing songs that you and I join together and sing. The Word this morning will speak to those who endure affliction, who will endure pain, who endure suffering on Christ's account. This morning the Word will speak to those who sit in uncertainty. You do not know what tomorrow brings as you take on a new race in life, a new season. You look... As suffering in the face, the word will minister you to this morning when anguish is the obnoxious neighbor that just sits there and just works on you as misery is company. The reality is, suffering is a part of life. This morning, the word will minister to those who have been wrecked by sin. The word will minister to us all. Welcome in continue our thoughts and studies in 1 Peter chapter 3 turn with me to verses 13 through 22 1 Peter chapter 3 13 through 22 and I will read that before we dive into our text together now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Verse 18, But Christ also suffered once for sins. The, righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteousness. That He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, is, eight persons, which were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to Him. This morning's passage is packed with truth and reality and good news. My hope is we definitely walk away being comforted. And I believe we can begin this journey together this morning by looking back to the original audience. The original readers. Think about their circumstances, the issues that they were facing in their lives that Peter is addressing here. This will establish our theme that we've talked about already. Suffering as a Christian for righteousness' sake. If you look at verses 13, 14, and 17, it makes it very clear the issue that Peter wants to address here in terms of their circumstances and in fact that they were suffering. And they were suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 15 makes it clear that these believers were being questioned. They were being tested. And that He called on them and challenged them to be prepared to have a defense for the hope that they have in Christ. In verse 16, they were being slandered and they were being reviled because of their faith. He continues to encourage His readers to endure suffering and persecution by giving themselves entirely to God. All So the last several weeks, we've been walking through what it looks like to live honorably before each other and before this world. To live in harmony that reflects Christ and His goodness. It's equally important that the early church, the first generation church, was encouraged by the same truth. And they were challenged as our brothers and sisters, let's put this into truest perspective, these are our Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. That first generation church, the first, they're being persecuted. We've got to remember they were dispersed all across Asian Minor, which we look today as the modern turkeys. We look to the map. They were scattered. They were dispersed. They were distressed. Everything was being brought against them for their faith in Christ. And Peter urged them, remain faithful. God will vindicate. God will make it right. So today as the church, we receive this same message. This same message will help us walk in victory. It will help us walk in confidence. It will help us send and go boldly to places, to our families, to the other world, to the globe, to our influences here and to our influences there, the nations when we wrestle with the idea of not being safe, or being criticized for speaking out about our faith, this passage this morning gives us peace of mind. It's okay. And not only peace of mind, but it will challenge us because we are called to live a life boldly and bravely. So as we continue to look at that church, remember they were dispersed across Asia Minor because of who? Emperor Nero. Remember that. We have learned the very first part of this letter. So he says in verse 13, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Basically, Peter is saying here, why would somebody harm you for being good or for doing good? We would like to think that it's normal and that it's unusual for someone to mistreat someone who is trying to do good to them even in a hostile culture that doesn't understand, even in a culture that may call us bigots because of our faith and what we stand for, they typically do not cast judgment or go after our work against us if we're trying to bring something proper and right to society. Church, providing the means for adoption, means of helping orphans across the globe, means of... Uh, any type of really um, remedy or source of income for somebody, meaning a need, some type of mercy ministry. The church does a lot for the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's, he's saying, who is there who would harm against you for doing good? However, the reality is that harm does happen for those who do good. Have you found yourself in a relationship or found yourself standing up for your faith or standing up for something you believe in? A conviction that only you understand because of the Word of God, and then they press back against you. They call out to you. They call you that you're, uh, that word, that language, bigot. That's, you're just basically just single minded, focused. You don't want to look at anything else but what you believe. You do good, and you continue to do this, and you found yourself laughed at, mocked, challenged. They joke about you. They laugh at your faith. And my question to you, if, honestly, if you have not seen this, if you, if you have not had conversations with family members and lost friends, then I would encourage you to engage and associate with lost people more. The reality is it's going to happen. And I'll briefly share something that just this week really expedites the point I want to make. As I was on Facebook... And I put a post. I said, in the state of Louisiana alone, there's an estimated 1,089 children in waiting to be adopted. There are an estimated 7,983 active churches. The remedy appears clear. Harmless post, I would think. Maybe a call to the church to react. Nothing passive-aggressive there, just putting the statistics out and what I felt was true. Well, the conversation began to play out and I I won't say any names, but Kelly. Uh, yeah, Kelly uh, posted a comment. Very gentle, very kind in a Kelly way. Please keep us posted on any ideas or possibility of helping aged out kids. Aged out kids who are those who leave foster care without an adopted family. And what other ways can we serve the church to help this issue? There has to be more that we can do. Amen. So Kelly, with that response, just being honest and open. Well, lo and behold, a conversation explodes. And 48 comments later, it ends with, Save your prayers on me to your Sky Fairy and for the kids who are starving and have malaria. That was the last comment from a family member of mine that got into a conversation with someone because of a post that I placed that Kelly commented on, made a suggestion, is it ever okay to have an abortion? Of course, this conversation, I always leave for face-to-face. But it unfolded, and like I said, 48 comments later, when someone expressed they would pray for my family member, he did not want the prayers. We pray to a sky fairy according to the lost. You're going to find yourself joked on. Pick that. Did that comment have esteem? Yes. Because that comment had esteem because the person that I love as a family member has never disrespected our different views. So of course, you know me, I reached out on the side and we had a conversation. I was able to stand for truth. We worked it out. to disagree. But we need to understand that we should not be alarmed when non-believers do not understand our position and conviction. So my question to you this morning, should we act like they should understand? Have you found yourself there? Treating a non-believer as a believer? A Christian? How do they understand our conviction on certain positions in society? Are God's a sky fairy? We have to really think through how we respond. Because when I see this, conversations of this nature unfold in my life, it assures me of the promises that are understood in this holy book. Don't find yourself frustrated at the person. Find your frustration in the sin and the life of that person that's grieving God. They need mercy like we learned last week, the same way you and I need the mercy of God. So, doing good in the name of Jesus does not mean good will be reciprocated. Amen? We agree there? Just not. Last week, we are called to do good and bless others. But when we bless others, we should not look to the one that we bless. We should look to Jesus as the great... Greatest blessing of all. And that should suffice. Bad hates good. Evil hates righteousness. And evil will seek it out. It will try to destroy it. It will try to frustrate you. But whatever occurs to you and I, as long as we are looking to Christ, when our faith and good works is ridiculed, we can remember that a perfectly good man did the greatest work on the cross. It's okay. We trust and remember our inheritance because of this work. We trust and know that we are becoming more like Christ as we combat and work through these conversations with non-believers. Very simple question Peter was writing there. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But remember, he is writing to the people who are the church who's being already being persecuted for their faith. So he says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear, nor be troubled. Because He says, you will be blessed. Suffering for Christ, and I've said it before in a very unfamiliar way, brings about blessing. Remember, Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then He says, have no fear of them. Remember the context of this letter. Peter writing to the first generation church that is being persecuted. Have no fear in them. Okay, Peter. We're tucked away. We're being persecuted. We have friends. So this I really want to bring to the to the forefront what was taking place under the reign of Emperor Nero. The first generation church in the summer of 64, Rome suffered a terrible fire that was put in place because of this emperor. For seven days and nights, consuming almost three quarters of Rome. The people began to blame Nero, but Nero placed the blame on Christians. Therefore, persecution began. Our brothers and sisters before us, their deaths were made like a subject of sport. They were covered in hides of beasts and hunted. They were worried about and scared to death by dogs. They were put to the cross and they were burned. Yet Peter, in his confidence of the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, being inspired, says, do not fear them. Even though all this is happening. Can you imagine with me? Could we have the faith amongst such threats? We really need to think on that. And as this comes, and as he addresses, he also, remember before, asks, writing in this letter, he he's addressing living honorably amongst each other in harmony, not just in the church, but also to their masters, to the world, basically, all together. Let's put it together. I want you to be honorable in your persecution. That is only made possible by the power of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this in our own might. The early church could not do that without Jesus and His work and the power of God. And he continues to tell them, now live honorably in the midst of suffering. So how are we to accomplish this? I say we because we need to find our faith at that threshold, be able to go. We need to be able to take a punch and stand for what is right. So he says, to accomplish living amongst suffering, he laid it out in our passage, verses 15 through 17. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So we see, honor Christ as Lord. Defend your hope. Our hope together. Maintain a clear conscience. Let's break that down real quick. Honor Christ in your heart as Lord. Set your hearts on things that matter. Eternal things. Kingdom things. I get that there are responsibilities here on this earth, here and now, but we have a bigger picture that you and I live for. That changes the way the mother who lost a child gets out of bed. It changes the way the father that thinks about work and just miserable. It changes the way we go about life. Because it's bigger than making the dollar. It's bigger than having the nicer of the nicest. It's bigger. It's because you and I are the vehicle to share the good news. That changes the way we work. It changes the way we go. And we honor Christ with the things that are in our heart, but we don't honor Christ just as Lord. We honor Christ as a holy Lord. One who is divine. Hallowed, who is sacred. One that governs our life. Helps us and guides us and desires us to be worshipped in our hearts. So that all that we do brings glory to His name. We need to let this sit as we learn to live a life that submits to a holy God. That we learn to love and obey Him. And as we learn to love and obey Him, we study His Word to know Him. And His Word defends. Truth defends. So that leads us to our second way of living out honorably in our midst of suffering is we are to defend our hope when people question. That's not a bad thing. It's a bad thing when you do not have a defense to that question. And you cannot have a defense without knowing the Word of God. You cannot have a defense without being changed by the Word of God and having a testimony. And it's what we call the story of God's grace. All of this works against the non-believer are the one who reviles are the one who is pressing against you and doing evil things to you you need nothing more but jesus as we defend our hope this places a huge priority on knowing the word of god not only understanding but being able to articulate a response to those questions and to those accusations but when we do as the lord works in us and We must do it gently. We must do it with respect. We have to be different. Church, I know it is so easy to chime in and act the way the world acts. We must stand against those accusations with gentleness and respect and love for the Word of God. We must know the Word. So as we hear and read about our responsibility, let us be able to share about our salvation partnered with anticipation of God's glory. It changes us. With that salvation working in us? The songs I sing, the Word, doing life and experiencing the good and the bad together. Serving together the meet needs. Ministering the Gospel to the world. We do this together with anticipation of the good and the glory of God. The radiant glory of God. That changes our perspective. But then the third part there says, maintain a good conscience follow me here. I need you to follow me. We're going to look at conviction versus conscience. I think people get them blurred a bit. So we see that conscience will accuse, but the Word and the Holy Spirit convicts. There is a difference. The difference is this, that our innate conscience is born in us to notify us when we are doing bad. And it typically does this by giving us guilt, by providing shame, by producing doubt, fear, anxiety, and despair. Our conscience at times will make us feel guilty. But the difference here is conviction that is brought into our life because the newfound perspective and salvation of Christ is brought on by applying the Word by the Holy Spirit of God to bring it alive in us. So to maintain this good conscience, to know the difference, you and I must have a clear understanding. A good conscience for Christians is attained by clear conviction. Gotta understand that. And clear conviction comes from confession. We confess when the Word convicts us, when the Holy Spirit is, is convicting us. And as we stand convicted, we confess. Now we have a holy and right just conscience before God. That is different than a good conscience that brings about shame, doubt, guilt, anxiety. Both the non-believer and the believer have a conscience. We're born with that. The ability, a common grace, God's design. But only the true born-again believer experiences the divine conviction that brings about a good conscience that we're speaking of here. Living, hear me church, living free from guilt or shame. Divine conviction is always accompanied by God's grace. That's the work of the cross. That's to know that we can live and free. And that's where he goes into in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that He might, be, that he might bring us to, good, to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Verse 18 to me, presents one of the richest and clearest New Testament summaries of the work of Christ. In one line there, look, for Christ also suffered once for sin. Suffered once for sin. Jesus paid the penalty of our sins. Jesus paid the penalty. And look at that. The righteous for the unrighteous. This, the righteous man. Perfect man. Righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was a substitute in our place. And then, thirdly, there, to undo the effects of our sin and to restore us to God. That He might bring us, look there in the latter part of verse 18, that He might bring us to God. This is the work, cross. For those of you who enjoy, Larger phrases and terms, penal substitutionary atonement. Suffered once for the right, he was righteous. He's righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. When I read this, and I think about our situations, maybe our afflictions, I think about brothers and sisters across the globe that we pray for. Jesus understands. He understands where you are. He suffered as one who was striving. Hear me here. He suffered as one not striving to be righteous. Remember, He suffered as one who was already righteous. That is a big difference. Jesus was perfectly righteous and suffered for the unrighteous. Is there a greater love story? I know that our lives are wrecked through sin, failure, and error. But all of that is canceled because of what Jesus did on the cross. Peter's just comforting the church here. It's going to be alright. He understands. Keep pressing through. Stay focused entirely on God. So wherever you are this morning, I extend that same comfort Uncertainty. New life. Child entering the world. Maybe you lost a job. There's a variety. As a pastor, it's a privilege to see a variety of life. But I know it's hard. Press on. Stay focused. Let our hearts not be troubled by this world, but let it be, just ponder eternity. Life thinks going before us, people. We pick up in verse 19, in which He went to proclaim to the spirits in prison. So Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, and then put to death in the flesh on the cross, made alive in the Spirit, and now He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. This morning we do not have time to dive in to the three separate interpretations that I came across of this verse in this passage. But I will break it down briefly to you, three different ones. The first interpretation is spirits as the unsaved spirits of Noah's day. The second, this is human spirits, excuse me, the unsaved human spirits of Noah's day. Secondly, Spirits, fallen angels who were cast into hell to await the final judgment. And third, an idea that Christ offered a second chance of salvation for those in hell. I'll stand before you among the three interpretations, one and two, fit best with the rest of Scripture. I do not want to cause confusion or take another hour to work through the interpretations. I I assure you, that could be a conversation. A lengthy one. But what I do want to bring to you this morning, the good news. That Christ is, and He is victorious in proving and working out His Father's will. That's what we need to know. That's what encourages us to fulfill verse 17. To look to our Savior for that strength. To look to God to know that He is the only one that can make what we're walking through that may appear bad, good. And then Peter continues to correlate baptism with the flood there in verse 19 and verse 21. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers Having been being subjected to Him. Like the earth here, being flooded and a new era began. This baptism in our life is being referred to as the same. He says, which corresponds to this? To what? To the work written in verse 18. Jesus Christ suffering sins, righteous being placed on the cross for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, then resurrecting from death. And being made alive again in spirit. Our baptism shows this passage, this verse. For we were buried with Him in death and then resurrected with Him in newness of life. These words cannot be forgotten on that day that we were baptized. Because it corresponds with the work of Christ. So the question that is asked often, does baptism save you? No. The act of being physically baptized does not save you. Let me clarify, as Peter does in the second part of verse 21. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for that good conscience, that clear conviction, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Physical water running over the body does not save us. But baptism is the result of the already saving work. It is the proclamation. It is us. A public display of Christ's work in us. That's what he's talking about here. A result of a newfound faith in life in Christ buried with Him in death and resurrected in the newness of life. I just absolutely love saying that. So good that we can walk this life. And to sum it up this morning in verse 22, the greatest truth that we'll walk away with, this is the victory here. Who has gone into heaven? Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Christ is and has and will always prevail over all. And that's who loves us. That is the righteous who gave His life for the unrighteous. This is the comfort that comforted the persecuted church as they endured the affliction. This is the comfort you and I need to stay the course, to know that the One who loves us is called Lord. He is the Lord of our life. All reigning, sovereign, champion over all. So, where does this truth leave you today? Where are you in life? Where does this truth line up? Where does it comfort you? Where is it going deep into your heart? To know that suffering is a part of God's plan. To know that affliction is a part of God's plan, but it is momentary. Does this cause you to look at the refugee crisis differently and trust God? And when you hear about other persecuted Christians, it gives us the ability and the comfort to know that He's going to work it out. And that He is champion over it all. And as we learn that, we live confidently. We can go. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot says, there's nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for. Though you and I may not be brought to the edge of death for our salvation, we still have to ask the question is the gospel worth dying for? If you found yourself treated as a sport, covered in wild beast clothing, chased throughout the fields, burned, is that the same gospel that we're living in? The power? We have to question ourselves, are we willing to go to the sake for Christ? Are we willing to forego all the comforts that we've worked so hard for? We have to ask that question. So to the mother that I spoke of, to the father, to the wife, to the man, to the worker, to the church, and to all Christians, We've all been wrecked by sin and the fall of man. The word this morning is, I hope that it gives you assurance. I hope that it gives you a sureness, a sureness to let suffer shine. I get it. All too familiar with it. That we want to go inward. But there is a time and place for that. But there is also a time and place to let your momentary affliction just glean. Let people see it. Because I can assure you from testimony, as you learn to do that bravely, to put, your, put yourself out there, you will witness God use your faith to call out and strengthen the faith of others. You will witness people come to know Jesus Christ his Lord and Savior. And as God draws out people in their faith and draws people out in their convictions, as they look to your life and they see that your foundation is in Jesus Christ, this is how we suffer righteously. And I've said it once and I'll say it again. And I'll say it till I die. That suffering is not meaningless let pray.